That was the legendary Mick Jagger singing his wistful song Angie about a love that had slipped away. I've been fascinated about the elusive and profound nature of love ever since I read The Road Less Travelled by American psychiatrist M. Scott Peck when I was a teenager. It's a stunning and mature work which, among other things, makes the distinction between sexual desire and romantic love. I decided to interview my friend Paul Munger about this topic because aside from being a poet who has written a lot about love and infatuation, his own life has been a kind of road less travelled. So, Paul, if you were to sum up love you know, in a succinct manner, how would you do so? Well, you know, as a poet, I could uh, perhaps later I will wax lyrical about that. But it seems to me that there is a folk wisdom about this. And I would be inclined to distill it into two quite simple maxims. They're not sentimental ones. The first is that love will make a fool of you, but life is bleak without it. Um, I think each in our own way, we do experience the truth of this. And it goes back a long time. The second is that there's no remedy for mortality. We age, we die, and that's in the best case. Um, And the losses that are entailed in ageing and dying are poignant. The things that are most poignant are the loss of the things and the people that we love. Uh, Between those two maxims, it seems to me, one might claim to have summed up the importance of love to human beings and the depth of feelings that it stirs. So that would be my summary, if you like. Do you feel as though you're able to articulate those two maxims as succinctly and eruditely as you you have done so just now, having lived a lifetime in which you've experienced love and romance and intimacy and desire and all various facets of human intimacy, as opposed to when you were maybe 18 and sort of just setting out on life? Absolutely. I mean, look, I would say, and I speak from personal experience in this, when you're 18, 19, 20, even well into your 20s, and people offer you um, stuff from wisdom literature or, in many cases, line from poetry or offer you advice, it can sound cliched and weary and, um, and not very interesting because you're just, your hormones are raging and you want love, you want passion, right? You're, everything in your being is screaming mm. out for it. Um, after you've lived a few decades and lived and loved, you begin to understand why there is poetry and what is the difference between wisdom and superficiality. And, uh, you know, it, to, to perhaps quote something that's overquoted, you know, it was, uh, I believe, John Lennon who said, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. And mm. that's absolutely been true in my case. I, I had many plans and most of them came unglued. <laughs> I had many loves and most of them came unglued. And along the way, I kept learning. <laughs> and that's why yeah. such maxims now mean a great deal to me. They're yeah. not empty. Yeah. Something that sort of comes through in those maxims, but also in our various conversations is this, and and the reference to the M. Scott Peck's work as well, is this dichotomy or or definitional difference between love and sexuality or love and and infatuation. Scott Peck famously refers to it as the illusion of falling in love. If you could set out the difference between love and and desire, I mean, how, how would you do so? Well, I think we need to think, or let me put it more generously, we we can think for the sake of clarity about this subject in terms of a kind of pyramid with three steps. The first is the biological world. Sexuality is biological. It's absolutely fundamental. And the whole animal and plant kingdom is full of sexuality. Uh, Every spring just blooms to life and and animals get into the mating season. Um, the second level is the distinctively human. What is it that makes us any different from any other animal when it comes to attraction, to display, to courtship, to mating, to reproduction? The third, beyond those basic human characteristics, is what is it that is possible for human beings? What heights can we rise to in the kind of love we can experience and give to others? And we might perhaps make progress by addressing those three steps one after another. Mm-hmm. So if we were to begin with the biological, um, you referenced spring. It is the first day of spring today in Melbourne. You wouldn't know it by the freezing cold temperatures outside. It's a Melbourne spring. After it all. is a Melbourne spring indeed. Keeps you on your toes. But if you were to give an outline of the biological basis of sexuality and thereafter love and intimacy, 
How would you do so? Well, if you look at the at the poetry, the song, um, literature of virtually every human culture on earth, one thing that springs to the eye straight away, or the ear, if you will, is that sexuality uh, constantly draws on metaphors from the natural world of, of spring growth, of the winter of lost love, uh, of the beauty of flowers and trees, uh, of uh, the magnificence of animals and their courtship rituals, of the beauty of various kinds of animals and their display. And human beings themselves, of course, uh, give flowers uh, in romance and dress themselves in finery and they display and they compete. Um, so this is uh, age-old. What we've discovered in the last 150 years or so is the whole science of biological evolution, which has thrown a lot of light on what's going on in the plant and animal world, on the nature of sexuality, and has given us access, if we take the trouble to inquire, uh, to a better understanding of the, the nature of sexuality and the traps it actually sets for the unwary. Because the whole thing about attraction, desire, the compulsion to sexuality and the consequences that flow from that uh, is something we experience by trial and error in every generation. And it's only by learning, hopefully before we've made fatal mistakes, that we can rise to a higher level and gain ourselves freedom and dignity. That's what the human thing is all about. Sexuality and the compulsion towards romance and, and mateship and courtship is nothing more than, I guess, a function of life reproducing itself? Is that is that kind of what you're referring to? At the most fundamental level, absolutely and unequivocally. And and let's not consider that that's selling it short. You know, Nick Lane, in a recent one of a book called Life Ascending, uh, points out that there are um, two basic kinds of biological cell in the world. The prokaryotic cell, which reproduces itself by cloning. Bacteria do this and the eukaryotic cell, which reproduces by swapping genetic information, and this is the foundation of sex. Mm -hmm. What we're doing in sexual relations is swapping genetic material. Eukaryotically. Eukaryotically, (laughs) and all uh, animal life and plant life on the planet is essentially eukaryotic. So the profusion of color, of of, uh, display, uh, of song, bird song, etc. The, the, all the repertoire of human courtship and romantic beauty behavior. we see in the world, really, it's, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, he, Lane put this very well when he said, "Sex makes the difference between a silent and introspective planet full of doer self-replicating <laughs> things and the explosion of pleasure and glory all around us." All right, that is amazing. That is, that is the is biological incredible. reality, right? Mm. And we we, if we fail to understand yeah. that. Not only do we not understand the natural world and yeah. other creatures, we fundamentally fail to understand ourselves. So if we were to do a self-replicating uh, beings, well, I guess, what's the point of it all? It just seems like so, so much of our telos, or our, our purpose in life, seems to be partnership and, and romance and courtship, and, and that kind of maybe sometimes gets misconstrued with the, you know, sort of the external kind of manifestations of love and romance and desire, right? Rather than... I guess the ultimate, like the nuts and bolts of it, if you will, of actually reproduction. That well, notoriously, in a universe in which all we had to do was reproduce, right? Which we've acknowledged is uh-huh. the point of sex and attraction, whatever. Why does why do we need all this fanfare? Because yeah. otherwise, we wouldn't bother. We have to be tricked into it. <laughs> I mean, but I'm I'm perfectly serious. Yeah. When you look at other living creatures, leaving aside human pretensions and, and illusions, other living creatures do these things, right? Hmm. Um, and they do it seasonally, and males compete brutally and often, you know, for female favours. Uh, there are variations on the theme, but one or other gender tends to engage in a great deal of display in terms of colour and physical beauty or, or dance or song or all sorts of things to attract a mate, all right? This is about reproduction, mm. all right? There's a wonderful book by Richard Prom, which was published only a couple of years ago, called The Evolution of Beauty, and... His argument is that we have neglected the role of beauty in mate selection and mm. therefore in evolution to our cost in terms of understanding ourselves and life on the planet. Uh, and I think if we do understand this, not only can we take these things more seriously, but we can also gain a certain amount of freedom from our own compulsive behaviours. Mm. Right? We need to rise above the automatic to generate what's distinctively human which is a free and creative approach 
to the whole issue of desire, attraction, impulse. courtship, impulse. Yeah. Exactly. So not only in moral terms, but in poetic terms, in terms of making something of our lives that's distinctive and free and dignified. Mm. And you know, this is where the philosophy as well as the morality of sexuality kicks in. And ultimately, and in my view, at the pinnacle, where poetic creativity um, enters the picture. That's all fascinating. And I, I will touch on in the interview and the nature of human love and what it means to be human and to participating in this exchange. Um, but, you know, it's remarkable to think that there are prokaryotic cells in the world which, which sort of fulfill the same function without all the circuitous sort of and often painful and, and, and you know, uh, difficult um, and very time-consuming. Yeah, a process of, you know, mating and, and mm. falling in love or, like, a, re- reproducing. So, like, I, I don't know, it's almost existential. Like, why are we eukaryotic and not prokaryotic? It's extraordinary. And why why, the, why is it that the eukaryotic cells seem to have attained a state of sort of primacy in, on, on, on planet Earth? Well, there are two ways to answer that question. So the first is that eukaryotic cellular structure and behaviour makes things possible that have never been achieved never been achieved by prokaryotic cells mm. and and from any aesthetic point of view if, if you're as it were a godlike being looking at the planet the emergence of eukaryotic cells and complex life forms is far more interesting than anything that happened before yeah all right and uh, if you're a human being and you take an interest in the natural world you would surely reach the same conclusion on the other hand it, from a prokaryotic point of view all of this is is um uh, in one sense, a departure from the norm. Yes. Because for about two and a half billion years, the whole of life on Earth consisted of prokaryotic cells. Right. All right. And they had the planet to themselves. Uh, and doer and grim and efficient. Yeah. Well, from from <laughs> our point of view, but from their point of view, that's life. Yeah. All right. But why life? Yeah. Anyway, right. go on. Yeah. Let's not answer and, that. Well, you yeah. might, of course, without digressing at too great length here, you might still ask, as people do. Okay, so we're human and we have all these impulses and we do all of this stuff, but what's the point? Mm. What is the meaning so of life? Tell us before, what is the meaning, essentially? Yes, mm. right. Well, now that's a whole big subject. Another podcast. It's yeah. one that philosophers and poets, in their own way, attempt to answer. And at the very least, uh, in the case of poetry, attempt to give a livable answer here and now to that question. But, but to cap off an answer to your question about prokaryotes and eukaryotes, as, as you know at least, but your listeners won't, one of my early poems is called We Carry Oats, and it makes precisely this distinction. And without reciting the whole poem, it opens by saying, how would life be? Would it still be erotic had it made you and me simply prokaryotic? Mm. This is an interesting point to jump off into the nature of human love rather than biological or material functional love. Um, what, 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 what if anything, distinguishes human love from everything else we see around us in the world, not just prokaryotic exchange, but you know, the love and the courtship rituals of lions, for instance, or ants or bees or whatever it might be. Um, you know, When we speak about human love, do we mean anything beyond that in a different form? Well, that's where we have to make a couple of distinctions. So one way to answer your question is to say, on the whole, there isn't any very great distinction. If you look at the way birds or dolphins or whales or monkeys and others court one another, uh, you can go into the insect world, there are countless variations on the theme. Mm. Uh, They differ in detail, but fundamentally the same thing is happening. That is, on an intraspecies basis, male courts female or vice versa, Mm. and they reproduce. Mm. And another generation grows, and that's extraordinary as a phenomenon, and then they grow up and they do the same thing all over again. And it's been happening for millions and millions and millions of years. Our species has been doing it for, well, it's now estimated in in the case of our particular species, perhaps 300,000 years. But our stories are almost entirely confined to the last few thousand because it's only then that we've had writing. But I would say this. So at one level, Generically speaking, there's no difference. We're just like other creatures in our own way. But there is a sense in which what's different about human beings is that what's possible for human beings, not what happens automatically, right? Not Something you have to work at, it's not the impulse. It has to be culturally and even personally generated in order to rise above the completely automatic and banal, right? In any given culture, overwhelmingly, people go through the same rituals, 
Why? Because neither they nor the people around them have terribly much imagination in terms of making it in any way different. This is just what you do. Physiologically, there are impulses. Culturally, there are rituals. Hmm. And generation after generation, that's what they do. And it seems to add a certain amount of meaning to have rituals that go back at least decades, sometimes centuries, sometimes millennia. What the poet tries to do is to give it a whole new meaning. Hmm. What the philosopher tries to do is to understand what's really going on here. And what's possible for human beings more generically is to keep rising through those level of meanings, levels of meaning and giving felt meaningful expression then to their personal love. So before we jumped into this interview, we sort of spoke about um, Plato's Symposium as the first, or I guess the seminal work, which tried to distill this note or unpack or define, understand this idea of human love. So do you want to sort of speak about that? Well, you know, it, it certainly wasn't the first attempt, of course, to do that. Human poets, long before Plato, had been attempting to give expression lyrically and reflectively to their experience of love and the possibilities of love, uh, and not just in the Greek world. But what's interesting about Plato's Symposium is that it consists of a dialogue among a number of educated Greeks at the height of the glory of Athens in the 5th century BC. In fact, in the middle of the Peloponnesian War, the dialogue can be dated to 416 BC. And uh, several famous historic figures are present. Socrates is there. Aristophanes, the great comic playwright, is there. Agathon, who is a tragic dramatist, is there, and he's just won the prize at the Dionysian Festival for his tragic drama. Uh, Alcibiades, the statesman, is there, who is a young protege of Socrates, and and, um, they've had a kind of erotic involvement, Mm. which Alcibiades Mm. reflects on. Um, But the subject of their drinking party, their symposium, is this question, what is love? Mm. And Plato, of course, wrote it, and it's a, it's a consummate work of dramatic art because he begins with uh, love or eros being described in fundamentally biological terms, just as we have done. And Aristophanes, the comic playwright, um, has this hilarious scenario in which he says, well, you know, originally human beings didn't have four limbs. They had eight because they had two sets of genitalia and they were joined in such a way that they could copulate whenever they wanted and they ro- rolled around, tumbling around on their eight limbs. Mm. Prokaryotically. Uh, yeah. uh, um, well, not so much <laughs> prokaryotically, yeah. but certainly erotically. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and Aristophanes says, but the gods eventually became disgusted because there was this constant sexual congress. Um, and uh, so they decided to, to uh, crack down a little and they bisected all of these eight-limbed human beings mm. The way he says you you were split an egg in half with a hair. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's a consequence, he, th- he said. Um, uh, human beings have ever since been running around looking for their other half. Um, you know, uh, and we feel very happy if we find our original half. We feel a great sense of unity uh, and completeness. Yes. But it's very hard to find our authentic other half. Yes. Um, and it's complicated by the fact that some of us originally were two male bodies or two female bodies, not just one male and one female. Mm. And so we're attracted to our own sex. Mm. Um, this is quite an ingenious piece of writing. It's completely unashamed from the point of view of later puritanical morality. Um, and... Uh, Agathon then speaks, and he he says in a very high-flown way, you know, that Eros is about all the highest ideals and and the greatest fulfilments and happiness. And Socrates then says, well, you know, that that sounds fine, but is it really true? And he reflects in in a more analytical way on what's really going on, what love really is, and perhaps what it's not. Um, And uh, he ends up suggesting that there is something that's available here, that the others had either failed to notice or skimped over. And that is that, yes, there's the biological. um, And yes, human beings run around and they need to find another half, as we even say now. But he says there comes a point where you can realise that there is the beauty of another human being to which you're attracted, but that rather than just feeling this compulsive attraction to an individual, you notice that there is beauty in one, there's beauty in another, there's beauty in a third. In short, there is beauty as such, and that it's beauty that really draws you, and that it's incidental in a sense which individual draws you, or it's idiosyncratic. And once you realise that, says Socrates, you can start to reflect that beauty in its own right and the creation and regeneration of the beautiful is what draws you. 
Well, he says, that can bring you to a whole new level of freedom and dignity as a human being and to commitment to the creation and preservation of what is beautiful, to treating the other as beautiful rather than simply desirable. This makes the dialogue profound. And then Alcibiades bursts in and he's drunk and he he's come late and he hasn't overheard what's been said. But he makes clear that, uh, you know, Socrates is a, a rather strange individual. Um, but he's had personal experience with Socrates. He says, you know, take it from me. I tried to seduce Socrates hmm. um, and he wouldn't be seduced. He was trying to instruct me the whole time. And I eventually realized that that this was authentic and this was a most unusual human being. Mm. I haven't been able to rise to the standards that he sets. I'm much more worldly, but I think Socrates is extraordinary. Um, Now, that's a bald summary of the symposium, but I mention it because of two things. One is that the view of sexuality is very candid. It's it's not puritanical. um, And yet at the same time, we're being offered the possibility of a transcendence of, let's call it, animal sexuality. Not because one's condemning sexual desire, but because one is seeing through and beyond it to human possibilities. And uh, later in our culture, Christianity and on the borderlands of Christianity, but coming from the same biblical root, Islam, were much more inclined to be puritanical and condemnatory of sexual desire, much more uh, haunted by it and ill at ease with it than you find in the symposium. So if we want a refreshing and free approach to sexuality and love in our time, we could do a lot worse than begin with a symposium. That's a fascinating summary of the philosophical nature of love, Paul, and made more astonishing by the fact that it was written 2,400 years ago. But supposing you were Alcibiades 2,400 years ago, bursting in on the symposium, and you want to sort of outline what love means for you in terms of human possibilities, as you as you referenced what would you say? What what has it meant for you? Look, I would say that, in a sense, every one of us who picks up the symposium now to read it is Alcibiades. We're bursting on the drinking party, which has already taken place. And we come in with that kind of ingenuous and worldly question. Socrates is offering a rarefied vision here. How do we rise to that standard? What does it mean for us? Um, in my personal case, of course, I read the symposium a long time ago and... Uh, I've always regarded it as a classic. And to me, when I was younger and first read it, what it indicated was that sexual desire is an impulse that can lead us either to physiological uh, entanglement and or to a kind of sublimation of that desire, to to an appreciation of the beauty of another person and of beauty as such which opens up being human in a whole other way. And I I wanted that for myself. But I wasn't sure as a young man, of course, how do you do that? And uh, it took a long time. And, and you know, I was, I was a romantic from way back. I mean, uh, I'll never forget, for example, more than 30 years ago, when I encountered a woman who I went on later to write poems for. And it was a case, a classic case of being smitten that I was standing in my dorm room at a university and she walked past my open door. I was talking to a male friend and she looked at me and smiled. And I tell you, I was smitten on the spot. Just, I thought, wow. Mm. (laughs) And it was beauty that struck me. I didn't know the girl. I got to know her somewhat better later, but I was smitten by beauty. And I had to wrestle from that point for several years with that smittenness and the question of beauty and and the other person and sexuality. And I tell you, it was a painful lesson. And I wrote my first half decent poems in wrestling with that. Uh, And that wasn't the first time I'd fallen in love and it certainly wasn't the last time, but it was an indelible moment. And uh, and all those questions that are raised in the symposium were being raised right there. There's a really interesting distinction you've made just now through appreciating the beauty of another being just by virtue of themselves and appreciation of another being is almost like a vessel towards a form or ideal realm of the beautiful which Plato refers to in the symposium can you kind of not necessarily with reference to that personal example you just gave but comment on that distinction and and whether maybe Plato's I don't know it doesn't doesn't seem right to me in many ways to think about 
other human beings as vessels to the beautiful. We're actually in love with the beautiful, with the with the form of beauty, and the human particular is almost incidental. I think there is a danger of that, of course, and and in, if that is what happens, you can end up with a rather cold idea of beauty. Hmm. Um, so we have to hold a certain tension between the transcendent vision mm. and, as you rightly say, the particular human being. Which is the physical manifestation to reality. It's a mortal being with mm. their own concerns and mm. needs uh, and an organic being. We're living beings. We're not abstract entities. Who yeah. lives an individual life as, as unique as your own. And it's full of vulnerabilities and uncertainties. Uh-huh. Uh, and so a personal love... Mm is a way of the exploration, and it's almost an infinite journey in potential, into understanding and caring for and appreciating the complexity of another person. Hmm. And the wonder of it is when that's reciprocated, when you find that the yeah. other person totally, is, completely. Right, yeah. is exploring you. But if you and can appreciate appreciating, that, accepting you, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a fraught journey. We know this is not all, as we say, wine and roses, but... Uh, if we are operating at a more or less this, this philosophical level, yeah. as urged by Socrates, then uh, I would say, and I would say this as a matter of personal experience, while we love that individual, we can see the nature of love and the, the attempts we're making at loving in a transcendent context. All the religions claim, of course, to do this in their own ways. The philosophy here is separate from, and I would say free from, any idea of punishment, of hell or heaven, of angels or rituals. It's about Mm. real experience Mm. and how it can rise to a level of vision and appreciation and awe that otherwise is largely subconscious uh, and strongly driven by by biological impulses. Mm. What we need to be able to do, ideally, is dance with the two. And our, our most creative... Uh, endeavors, our greatest achievements in music, in poetry, in ballet, in in dance, do exactly that. So I'm I'm fascinated by the the poetic, literary, musical, artistic expression of love, which to me seems to be like another step on from I think you articulated this earlier, but from the biological to the human nature of love, which we've just um, touched on, um, human philosophical nature of love. But then there's a sort of like almost expressive, transcendent kind of articulation of that human experience which i think not everyone can access but everyone can relate to you know we all love you know beautiful love songs or like we started the the whole interview with with angie by rolling stones right um so there's something in that which kind of like distills in its purest form what it means to be you know human and someone who seeks to love and be beloved on on this earth and you know we asked before about whether there are differences between human beings and other creatures mm. in this regard. And I said, well, at a very generic level, no. We just do in our own way what they all do mm. in terms of courtship and mate selection and mm. reproduction and the cycle of life. But we are a distinct species. Mm. Now, two of the things that set us apart are language and music. And they are key to our possibilities in the area that we're talking about in terms of love and vision and creativity. Because language is not as are most of the sonic systems, bird song or whale song. Language yeah. is not limited in the way those are to certain kinds of, of signal or Frequency expression. Or whatever, yeah. Right? Language is generative of all sorts of subtleties uh, and modes of reference to past, to future, to possibility. Right? And through it, if we use it, and a poet uses it preeminently, we create meaning. We articulate our experience. We give it shape that then other people who are less perhaps linguistically gifted uh, find that they want to inhabit. As you said, you know, you listen to a song, you don't... Our, our capacities like, of feeling these emotions are, exactly. I think, are quite similar. Or, and music enhances that. Yeah. And our, our musicologists and our theorists of music have been establishing in recent decades in terms of neuroscience and everything else that music seems to be even more deeply rooted in our being than language. And one of the most fascinating ways this emerges is that people can have Alzheimer's or dementia uh, and they can seem far gone. They don't speak anymore. You start playing music and they'll tap their feet. Mm. Sometimes they'll even burst into song. You, you think they can't speak and they'll sing. This is extraordinary. This is music. Mm. 
and music is distinctively, in that sense, human. Hmm. And we're only beginning to, yeah. as it were, do an archaeology of how did this come about? Yeah. That's a, that's a profound yeah. area. And when you see a concert and you see thousands of people responding to an elite musical performance, and they're, they're just profoundly physically moved by this. They dance, they chant, they're full of emotion. Rhythmic right? is primal. It's, Absolutely yeah. so. Mm. All right. And and uh, it's worth reflecting on that. Uh, you know, we talked about Plato and the sense of beauty. If you go to a concert, you can get carried away with the music. If you're also philosophical, you realize this is a profound experience. And you, you get a kind of um, binocular vision of this, the immediate experience and the meaning of that experience. Mm. Uh, and if, in addition, you're a creative human being, you take it to another level again, you contribute to that. Before we move on to poetry and your experience yeah. of it, yeah. um, is it not also true that you know animals do experience love as well? Mm. Yes, there's a continuum in life. If, you know, if I may put it this way, I, I briefly referred to my poem, We Karyotes, and I asked... Uh, will I still be erotic if we were prokaryotes instead of eukaryotes? And the answer in the poem is, well, no, not really. Um, but from that point where eukaryotic cells start to exchange information, there's this very long slope, um, we would say upward slope, to creatures becoming more and more elaborate and experiencing mm. life more and more uh, fully, more and more emotionally. Um, and clearly that varies right over a broad spectrum of life forms but we know every person who's paid the slightest attention knows that the animals we associate with dogs famously horses um we know in the wild um uh, elephants we know whales pigs whales pigs monkeys etc there's mm. a lot of feeling there there's a lot of sentience a lot of awareness capacity for suffering but also love mm. clearly i mean d dogs can be enormously affectionate and loyal Elephants have long memories, and we observe animals grieving, of various mourning. kinds, grieving, mourning, mating, um, um, flirting. You know, monkeys famously, of course, and they're very close to us in the evolutionary scheme of things. So, the short answer to your question is absolutely. And we have done a disservice to other animals as well as to ourselves in the modern world, where we've tended to see animals in a Cartesian sense as just unfeeling machines. Um, that's that's simply not the case. Mm. Uh, now in the 21st century, some of us at least are edging back in another direction and saying, you know, animals have rights, you know. Mm. They're sentient, be sentient beings like us and we need to pay attention and give them more love. And that industrial farming, for example, is simply criminal mm. because of the pain and distortion it, inf you know, it inflicts on animal lives. Mm. And you can link that back to our, our central concern with human love by saying that if we treat another human being, any human being, simply as an object of physical exploitation. Gratification. Gratification, mm. right. We are, in a way, doing to them what our industrial farmers do to chickens and yes. pigs and so on. Yes. We're, we're treating them as, a, as a, an unfeeling, pointless thing. Mm. Uh, and, and that's the very opposite of love. Uh, and and a physical abuse of another person should yes. in no way be confused Emotional with love. Abuse. You said earlier, when you were a young man, you, you felt these great sort of impulses um, or a compulsion to write poetry to give expression to these sort of um, rich uh, feelings or this rich interior life that you, know, you had with regard to uh, you know, emotion and love okay. and attraction to other women and, and so other, on. Not other women, because yeah. I'm a male. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can leave that in, it'll be funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave that in as well. Um, but how did you get there? How did you sort of overcome the fact that when you first started writing poetry or analytical, you know, writing about the nature of love, it was difficult and fumbling and, and maybe not altogether expressive and lucid as, as it clearly is today. So what was all your sort of transformative um, slope, as it were? Well, the simplest way to put it would be trial and error, you know, and, and I have to say that a thought that's occurred to me in recent years is if... I had in fact succeeded in the ordinary romantic sense in any of my early loves and married in a conventional way and had children, etc. Uh, I wouldn't have become a poet, almost certainly. I wouldn't have had the time, I wouldn't have learned enough, I wouldn't have had the leisure to practice. 
I wouldn't have had the you know the varied experience that I've had with different women, different loves, different kinds of failure, and uh, above all, I wouldn't have met the woman who finally has become my muse and and mm. who more than any other has inspired me to write good poetry, and with whom I have a very authentic, uh, loving relationship. So it's been a long journey, mm. uh, and it's it's in many ways deeply satisfying to be able to look back on that and see how much I've learned, often very painfully, let it be said. But I do remember saying to a, a younger male friend about 20 years ago when he had lost a girlfriend who had left him, and he was desolate as one tends to be, and I said, my advice is exploit this for all it's worth mm. by listening to the best soulful music and song, which has been composed by people giving expression to what you're going through now. Mm -hmm find the better poetry and take it to heart because you're discovering how real it is. You can mine it and excavate it. Absolutely, yeah. you can, right? And then you, you build your own interior world. Mm. And I did do that. And, you know, one early step along the way was almost fortuitous. I, I was staying at University College 35 years ago mm. and um, the English tutor in the college decided to run a sonnet writing competition and the girl I was seeing at the time said, are you going to write a sonnet? And my initial re response was, no, I don't write poetry. I, you know, I'm a political scientist and historian. And she said, but you're very good with words. I think you should have a go. Mm. Amazing. And uh, I did. And I wrote a sonnet. And, and how did I get to write a sonnet? Well, first of all, one was supposed to write a sonnet. That was the competition. But secondly, to teach myself, I read Shakespeare's sonnets. There's 154 of them. I read the lot. By the time I'd read all these sonnets, I, I thought, well, I get the hang of this. This is what a sonnet is. Then I simply had a crack at writing one and, and it turned out to be a good one. Um, from that point for years, when I fell in love, which I did many times, I would write sonnets. Mm. It took me a long time before I became free enough emotionally and in terms of self-confidence to have a crack at other kinds of poems. And that didn't really happen until uh, I met my current partner and muse, and she really lit up the landscape for me. And so I've written better and much more varied poetry with a whole variety of rhyme and metrical forms and themes and moods mm. for her than for anyone else. If you had to pick one to read now, what would you choose? And let's have a read of it, I think. Well, um, to kick off with, I would... Here's one you prepared earlier. Sort of thing, yes. <laughs> yeah. It, well, we talked about biology as the foundation and about evolution and beauty and so on. And... There is a poem that I wrote a few years ago called Fire on the Wheel, which is about exactly that. The central conceit of it as a poem mm. is that the same couple, let it be said in this time of, of um, all sorts of gender variations, that it's about a heterosexual couple, not a gay couple, mm. I'm heterosexual, you know, people with different experiences and, and uh, identities will write poetry about that. I'm, I'm uncomplicated in being heterosexual and this is about a male and a female who live through the whole of human evolution over millions of years and it's addressed by the male partner to his beloved partner looking over the, the many many millennia the the millions of years in which they have mm. been reincarnated as it were again and again mm -hmm. um, and so it brings together the biological theme that i mentioned with the specifically human uh, and then being a poem it instantiates the third so it gives you the whole pyramid mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, let's go. What a nice, <clears throat> way to sum up. It, it, uh, it reads as follows. I've loved you from the beginning, with the simplest of gestures, with inarticulate cries, with unselfconscious mimicry. I've loved you since the first fire-wielding, when we yelled together at encircling beasts, feasted on fire-roasted insects and nuts, huddled round the flames in awe. Was that Eden, that long-ago eon, as the hand formed and the inner eye, the larynx and broker's brain, before ever we sang to one another? Or was eaten the time of hand axes, as all this came together in our hearths and hunting, from old Andalusia to the Chinese rivers? What years those were of wide exploring! Eurasia was ours with new spears, exulting in our uncanny craft, we wondered at what we were. Our long days fell like forest leaves, they endured like evergreens. Our fire circles lit the long nights, changing our dreams. Were those shimmering years, those many hundred millennia before our love made music, truly our golden age? 
Did you feel loved then, as the wide seas rose and fell, as the ice advanced and retreated, as the giant forests shifted again and again? Or was it only later, only later, that sentiment came and crooning, coaxed by oxytocin out of the flicker of long light under the waxing moon? Was I a caricature to your mind of all that was possible, possible for a singing hominid under the sun? Was I stone in need of shaping? Ah! We buried each other many times, again and again, with grief and ochre, over ages under the ageless stars, from Jebel Kafse to Beringia. Remember the times, sheltered from the harsh climate shift in the north, when we relished our little piece of Africa in Andalusia, those idyllic coasts and caves. But your love transformed me, your call for songs and stories, your playing to me on bone flutes, your vivid art of changing forms. We shook the shackles of the ancient trees, hailed the sky god with high hands. We took to the open horizon, pitched bold camp on the stark steppe. There, at last, you carved me into shape. Your love cut antler into a figurine, and I, deer hunter, roamed forth Gravetian, making long-lasting legends on the plains. You wove me a coat of wool, dyed in wondrous new colours, finer than any cured skin, and I revelled in your homespun beauty. Even that was a long age of ardour under the high wheeling stars, rich with rumour of far mountains, with mammoth hunts and possibilities. Then the revolution came at last, the wheel, the mastery and mustering of horses, the making of wains and war chariots, the being of bright burnished bronze. Ah, sky gods, the wheel and the horse brought an end to our long cycles. Ah, my lover with golden hair, the wheel set us rolling, riding, racing in the chariot of the sun, did it not? Since then everything has gone in a flash, a riotous blur of songs and innovations, a nightmare of blood and terror. I've loved you from the beginning. Let's not now go under the wheel. All our myths are confused. I long only for your beauty. It's a really, really stunning poem, and I think... You know, not that I've read it recently, but it seems to me to be remarkable because it encapsulates the expansive feeling of love in in the way that you've sort of straddled it, straddled it, or extended it, kneaded it across space and time, and matched it to the entire history of human evolution and development on, on the planet um, through the story of one love which is reincarnated and almost eternal and infinite which I think at its deepest expression all love should be thought of in a metaphysical eternal sense which transcends the, the brief time you have together on, on earth. The immediate and the banal, immediate, Exactly. Well not necessarily banal but the immediate and the, 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 the confined necessarily mortal nature of love. One thing that struck me as I was listening to that was the fact that you know, the idea of being ground under the wheel, the wheel of life, was the fact that how many, you know, billions of stories, individual human stories and individual human loves have there been on on this planet since since, you know, Homo sapiens or this this animal, this human animal sort of evolved consciousness and the ability to think in this manner. You know, and they're all essentially as you said, ground into the dirt and, and just sort of lost for all time. Mm. It's, so we it's were striking talking. to think about it, I mean, but one yeah. likes to think that one's love transcends and is immortal and eternal. And well, it's a, it's a conceit, of course, because it isn't. But in cultural forms, whether a poem or a, you know a treatise like the symposium or a great song, things can endure and be passed on long after the author is gone. And uh, you know, we could read a, a poem. For example, Shakespeare famously mm. wrote a poem saying that his poems would immortalize mm. the life of his beloved. Mm. We read the poem and we get his sentiment, but we haven't any idea who the beloved was. No, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose for Shakespeare, I don't know, in writing it, in, in, in any writing, like perhaps it feels, perhaps it is a conceit, like a literary conceit. But you know, I, I, I do still feel as though for the author. When you sit down and you express in in writing, maybe in music or in art, that feeling and that relationship that you had with that particular person who, hopefully if it was love, felt the same way about you, um, authentically, you know, one likes to think that it, 
will endure. Will endure, yeah, in some way. Well, think of it. Yeah. Here's another way to think about it. Um, if if we make up a melody in enthusiasm, and, and if we're able to do that, but we don't have any means to record it, hmm. uh, we don't have notation, we don't have a recording device, um, it can disappear, right? We, we might even personally forget it. We we whistle it to ourselves on a, on a morning walk, and then we we can't set it down, and we can't remember it after a little while. And we certainly can't share it readily with others. But if we have notation, we can write down the rudiments of it. Somebody else can then take that notation and say, that's not bad, but if you did this and this, you could enhance it. And then you get a musical ensemble, they start to perform mm. it, and they say, what if we added this instrument and that variation and this? And it just yeah. becomes something bigger, but, right? But in your in your own example with Sonnets to Promiscuous Beauty, I mean, it was almost metaphysical in the sense that, you know, the story behind your writing of that was you might explain yourself, but, you know, your lover who inspired that particular set of poems said that, you know, whatever comes of this, you know, at least this will be like a lasting testament, testament to our love. And sometimes uh, it doesn't matter if no one ever, no one reads this stuff. I mean, it's like it was there and you set it down in writing and it's it's almost enough for you. Yes, that's, that's of course, within literary human cultures, that's an ancient um, aspiration, you might say, or conceit. Mm. Um, specifically what happened, and I did share this story with you, is that... Uh, I must have written about 40 sonnets for this particular young woman um, a long time ago now. And uh, I was I was madly in love with her. And she loved the poems. She loved the fact that I wrote them for her. She said to me things like, other men have written poems for me, for me but never like these. Mm. And then one particular night, she held up one of them uh, on a piece of paper I'd written it on and, and waved it in the air. And she said, you must get these published because then in years to come, Whatever happens between you and me, I'll be able to hold up your book and say, I inspired this. Hmm. That's a that's a lovely thing to share. And I did get them published eventually, not the 40, but uh, 12 of the best arranged in a sequence and illustrated and with commentary, and it makes a lovely book. Hmm. And we had long since gone our separate ways by the time that happened, and I've no idea. I've lost track of it completely. I have no idea whether she ever got hold of the book. But, uh, but it's there. It hmm. does exist. And... And for me, at least, quite apart from whether she ever gets to hold it up and say that it inspired her, and I hope she does so. I hope that it consoles her, whatever the condition of her life now is. But, mm. but for me, it it made something beautiful mm. out of an ephemeral love affair that fell apart and left me heartbroken. Yeah. So, what do you say to those people who kind of um, are cynical and sceptical and say we don't really need love and it's all? Yeah. I, I would lay good money that they are being disingenuous, that it's a defiant way, like in the old Simon Garfunkel song saying, you know, I, I'm a rock, I'm an island, uh, mm. you know, I don't need love. They're fooling themselves. Either they they actually do want it and they're defiantly pretending they don't, or they're so shut down emotionally that, that they don't realise what they're missing and then one feels a little sad for them. I would rather have the pain of unfulfilled passion or loss than not love. And um, I've tried to express that in my poetry. And uh, um, if I may, if we have time, I'd mm. like to add a second poem. This is one that I also wrote in recent years. It's called Dance Me On Down From Toledo. And it attempts to capture this idea that once you've formed an intimate partnership uh, and just to the extent that there really is love in it, that it's working, it becomes a kind of dance. Mm. Dance requires cooperation, you know, um, even in most classical forms of dance, a man may lead, but if a woman's not there with him and not moving with him, it doesn't work. Mm. Um, so it is with love. And uh, so, um, <clears throat> pardon me, this one goes, uh, Come and dance with me down from Toledo by the light on the bridge we have made to a land with a non-Christian credo where flamencos and tangos are played. Dance me speechless to high snow-capped mountains from which orchards and pastures are fed than the cypresses, arches and fountains of Alhambra, the Isle of the Dead. There the rich Andalusian muses sing softly to all who can hear, though a pallid blue past still confuses the mind and the heart and the ear. For vengeful and dark Catholic violence five centuries since overthrew and condemned to the grave or to silence the voice of the Moor and the Jew. But dance with me down from Toledo, by the light on the bridge we have made, to a land with a non-Christian credo, where flamencos and tangos are played. Though golden Al-Andalus perished, suppressed by the sceptre and cross, 
the ballads and songs gypsies cherished plucked songlines from ruinous loss. The spirit of Araby lingers in the genius of Spanish guitar, in flamencos for feet and for fingers, in tariga and in fajar. Those flamencos and songlines in flower, the soul of Granada reborn, so offended the fascists in power that they murdered poor Lorca at dawn. Still dance with me down from Toledo, by the light on the bridge we have made, to a land with a non-Christian credo, where flamencos and tangos are played. From there, let's dance on out of reason, with our hearts full of Lorca's deep song, until beauty has come into season, and we know that that's where we belong. While we dance, let's sustain that illusion, with whatever good faith we can find. May our steps take us wide of confusion, may our love keep us blissfully blind. For to sing and to dance in our yearning, to share our deep song face to face, to glide into each twist and turning, is to live with both freedom and grace. And so dance me on down from Toledo, by the light on the bridge we have made, to a land with a non-Christian credo, where flamencos and tangos are played. Stunning. Um, uh, I would um, think that there is another note which we might perhaps uh, finish on. That is to do with communicative intimacy. So that last poem was about, in a sense, the movement of life dealing with the twists and turns and challenges of life. But there's a very important sense in in human love, though not, as we hinted earlier, altogether absent in in the lives, the emotional lives of of rather animals, whether dogs or whales, etc. But that is that you want to be understood by the other person Mm. and you want to think that they want to be understood by you. Mm. And there's very subtle elements to that. And I've written a short poem which is actually... Uh, a variation on a poem by Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's called So That You Will Hear Me. It goes like this. So that you will hear me, my words, like lithe chameleons, are changing shape and tone. Before you touched them, my words were murmured darkness and cold stone. But you soothed my psyche, persistently making murmurings light, lamps over the muttered. Now I want my words to say what I want to say to you, so that I will hear you say that you want to hear me say them. I want my words to form a necklace of pearls for your hidden self, for your heart's throat. Stunning. Well, thank you very much for your time, Paul. As always, it's been a great pleasure.